I am afraid we're not rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. That's what Friedrich Nietzsche, a 19th century German philosopher, said about order in grammar. He was a very popular writer, but he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe that there's any order built into uh, in reality. He believes that grammar is arbitrary, moral authority is arbitrary, that really all we have is ourselves. Does that sound familiar? This is Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. And today we're going to talk about the moral order. I've been reading a book entitled American Nietzsche by Dr. Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen, who is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And it's about how this German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, is received into America. And it's really an interesting story because he's received in very inconsistent ways. In one sense, he kind of is uh, conceived as the proof for atheism. In another, it's about the inadequacies of of Christianity and the need to uh, respond to the social gospel in kind of a radically despiritualized way. So it's a good read if you have the time for it. But Nietzsche uh, is a philosopher, he says, with a hammer. The idea is that he attacks the verities, the morality of Western culture, as everything is simply about power, uh, but that there is no objective basis uh, for what we think of as moral right and wrong. It is just the expression of power. And the way that he does it, it's really a very simple move. He just does what Ludwig von Feuerbach before him did, what Sigmund Freud after him did, what Karl Marx, his rough contemporary, did. They just uh, deny that God exists. And if God doesn't exist, then religion is, according to Feuerbach, just a uh, projection of the human person onto the world around them. But for all of those for philosophers that I mentioned, it all presumes that God doesn't exist. And it's why I think for believers, you have the question is whether or not atheism can really be the basis for good in culture. It is true that an individual atheist, I think, can try to buy into the good and live what we would think is a good life. But can a whole culture survive on meaninglessness. I mean, for Nietzsche, it was basically staring into the abyss. But Nietzsche is a great example, uh, in, after reading Rosenhagen's book, of, of this conflicted nature of, uh, of American Western European atheism. I don't know if you pay attention on the internet, but there's this big argument that goes on as to how Nietzsche died and why it matters. Um, The traditional way that comes down to us from basically Nietzsche's time is that he contracted syphilis uh, by consorting with prostitutes. It went to his brain, and he went insane, and the ubermensch uh, had to be taken care of by his sister, who became his big defender, uh, which is uh, kind of a sad end. 
uh, for someone who has this philosophy of being the overman that I decide for myself what good is. Um, I'm like the eagle that makes a dinner of the little lamb, that Christianity is slave morality, and I'm what freedom is. So you look at his life and you think, oh, if that's where it goes, I think I'll, I'll pass. But that's why people who are uh, more enamored with Nietzsche's philosophy than I am uh, say that has just been a, a slander on his character. Really, he had, uh, I think one site said, if you look at it all, it really was brain cancer. It's this fight between the story that's been told for 100 years and revisionist histories. But that's at the heart of it is a sense of morality, what the good is. Um, and for uh, Nietzscheans who don't particularly care uh, that there's any uh, objective basis for good, if you really believe that, why would you fight over Nietzsche's legacy like that? That's what I think is ironic about it. Um, die of syphilis, die of uh, brain disease. What's the difference? It's just a meaningless universe. And uh, it's just one more example of why Nietzsche tells us the truth. Do you believe Nietzsche tells you the truth? Do you believe in grammar? Because apparently if you believe in grammar, you are evangelizing the world around you. This weekend in the gospel, which we'll talk about in a minute, is very much about the understanding of moral truth. And in the gospel, it is cultic truth, washing your hands before meals, how you prepare to come to mass by fasting. These are cultic truths or cultic customs. And then there's this much more fundamental moral law that Jesus talks about, about evil thoughts on chastity, maliciousness, licentiousness, murder, theft, and greed. Um, these things that he says truly darken the human soul. Uh, how do these two things relate? It, it, it's really about the nature of the good, which is what Nietzsche attacks. And so here's, I want to give you a sense of how we look at the good. In one sense, the good is God. Jesus says that. Who is good but God? And so for us, that when we participate in the good, like the good of charity, the good of loving our neighbor, we are participating in the goodness of God. But think about it how you experience it in a Christian way. And I think in a human way. I went to my nephew's wedding in the guy he was sitting next to was living with the girl he was sitting next to. And he told me that he didn't see any point um, to marriage. It didn't mean anything. Uh, he just saw relationships as being purely naturalistic, like um, just two creatures out in the jungle relating to each other. But this is not an adequate way of thinking about uh, the, the good in our own life. So think about it like this. You and your spouse, you connect on some deep, visceral, natural level. You are attracted to each other, the natural good of marriage. That starts to get you to think about making a commitment because it's going to be necessary for children who need, gosh, a long time uh, in the support of their parents for adulthood. Um, when a horse is born, he's up and walking within you know, 15, 20 minutes or less. Human beings, we need a lot more care. And so the morality around us uh, has a different level. And so going from the natural to the social, boy, you're so much better off if you have uh, parents who will help you with childcare, um, neighbors. 
you enter into marriage and it becomes part of this large social matrix, her family, your family, your friends, your kids connecting with everybody else's kids. Then because of that, there's this civic aspect to it. It's not just about divorce, which means what happens if a marriage breaks up in the state and someone gets the property, someone has responsibility for the kids. That's the state's interest. But in a much larger, healthier sense, it's um, Oro Valley, Marana, Tucson. What obligations does the state of Arizona and the federal government have to provide for the nurture of children and education, a healthy crime-free environment, um, help to escape drugs, um, all these things that the larger community has to support the family in. And if the larger community supports the family in all these things, what you're seeing is this order that's on a level of the human between our natural needs, our social needs of family and friends, and then this larger culture. And what the sacrament of marriage is, is it says that kind of human order is directed towards God. You want to be married because you want to be happy. And so you want to be happy so you have kids instead of buying that Maserati. But you have to support your family. And so the ways that you go to parties for her family or your family is to build a happy family. Why it is you want to vote for politicians that are, will provide uh, a safe environment for your family, work. All of these things is you want to this for the sake of a, something else, for the sake of something else. These are called conditioned goods. Father John uh, loves the Lord, so he does a podcast. Why does he do a podcast? Because he wants you to love the Lord. Why does he want you to love the Lord? Because if you love the Lord, you come into a divine order. What is good about coming into a divine order? Well, if all human beings who come to the church and participate in this divine order, uh, Father John's happiness is based also on your happiness. Everything is connected. The only unconditioned good, that is, the only good we want for its own sake, this is what we call God. What is God? I can't tell you what he's made of. No one made God. Um, all we know about God is what he tells us about himself. How we experience God is this desire for something that is good in itself. As St. Augustine, who's uh, feast we just celebrate said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Augustine's whole story in the Confessions is wanting this to get this, then wanting that to get the next thing and the next thing. And if you disconnect from God, it's just this big cul-de-sac. But to understand that what every good in your life is, is somehow leading you to God, then you have a sense of what the good is. And so, when we turn to the gospel, Jesus is talking to us about the good. Jesus is not a Nietzschean. Jesus is divine order present in this world. Let's take a minute and consider the gospel. Do you believe in grammar? Do you believe in the gospel? There is one thing for sure. We won't have a clue. The nature of the good in God. So Jesus and his disciples in the seventh chapter of Mark are walking through a field and the guys are just hungry so they're kind of just 
eating the, the seeds off the, the plants that are growing there. And the Pharisees, you have this picture that they're just hanging out on the edge trying to find fault. And this is the bad image of what it means to be religious, constantly trying to find fault with others. They asked Jesus why he and his disciples don't wash your hands before meals. And Mark's gospel goes into this long explanation of this custom of ritual washing before you eat, and ritual washing of cooking vessels. And Jesus says, hear me all of you and understand, nothing that enters one from outside can defile that person, but the things that come out from within are what defile. And so he's really talking about kosher, and that's the part that's cut out of the gospel. But that the idea is, is the stuff about washing your hands or what kind of food you eat, this is not what makes you a good or bad person. Here's what Jesus says. From within people, from their hearts, come evil thoughts, unchastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from within and they defile. You know, we're going to take the time and look at Mark chapter 7 and this. Think about it in reverse. What's the problem of evil thoughts? I mean, it's my body. I can think what I want. Well, the big problem is, as, as you probably know from your own experiences, if you think angry thoughts about others or lustful thoughts about others, at some point this is going to come out of your mouth or at some point you're going to act out on these things. That it's about intentionality. There is something within us that we can twist if we don't pay attention to it. Unchastity is a very good example. And this is all kind, every kind of sex outside of marriage, uh, from masturbation to just figure out whatever it is. Committed relationship, man and woman, for the good of, a, of children um, and for the spouses. This is towards chaste behavior, but you can be unchaste in marriage also using others as just a means for pleasure. Theft, Why? what's the good? The good is that people should be able to count on the fidelity of a partner. They should be able to count on property and the ability to make a living. Murder, the fundamental, irreducible good of the human person. Nobody gets to kill another person and call it good. Even executions on death row, nothing makes it good. Uh, it is just something we do because we think it protects us. Um, malice, m maliciousness is the very opposite of, of love. Um, what builds that whole example of the good about your marriage is this idea of connection and love, the good of others that goes from you and your spouse to your larger family, to the larger culture, to union with God. Love is what explains all of those goods. Maliciousness is the direct enemy of love. Deceit, to take reality and twist it so other people are living in a world that you created, not what God created. The ultimate good of truth, which is irreducible. Licentiousness, read Frederick Nietzsche, because licentiousness is the idea is that there is no good. You can do whatever you want. That the idea of truth, justice, beauty, Chastity, these have no claims on me. Envy, the unwillingness to be satisfied with what the gifts that you have in your life. Arrogance, that's the sin of pride next to the sin of pride, where basically everybody needs to get off my island um, because, uh, because, you know, that's the way that it is. I'm in charge. And folly, 
It's just not to be a serious human being. Where life is meant to be taken seriously. Love and responsibility go together. So if you're to take the time and look at that list of sins that Jesus lays out, because it's very expansive, and then just meditate on what the good that it is that is protecting. It's why when we come to Mass, we've made a good confession of serious sin, but we also confess sin and um, as we before we come to the altar, because it's what opens our hearts um, to listening to God's Word and also coming to the Eucharist. And this law that Jesus is talking about, these thou shalt nots, which protect the sovereignty of the good. It's really the structure of how God interacts with the people of Israel. Because in the story of Moses, and the story of Moses is the culmination of the story of Genesis, the fall of the human person, how God puts a rescue mission together with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately Moses, gives the people a law that brings order into their life. Because the law that God gives us is about the structure of our interior life, the choices we make, and the community we believe in, and the community that we live in. Interestingly, and I love referring to my law background, is the what's at stake in the gospel is the difference between cultic laws about washing your hands and moral laws. And Jesus says they're just not the same kind of thing. The law, uh, the American law, that's based on Christianity, though it's kind of disconnected from it, uh, has long recognized the difference between what's called acts malum in se and acts malum prohibitum. An act malum in se means wrong in itself is acts like evil thoughts and chastity, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, licentiousness, envy, blasphemy, arrogance, and folly. Nothing makes these things good. Um, you cannot build a life or a culture around those kinds of things. And that's why um, the good, the God, good and God go together, and why belief anchors you in an understanding of the good. Malum prohibitum is something that's wrong because it's been prohibited. It's not an intrinsic good or evil, but uh, there's some community purpose that serves, like a stop sign. I mean, a red sign with four letters on it, this is not what the good or evil is made of. But it does say that out of care and concern for others, you better stop at the corner. And this is just a rule where civil authorities put that stop sign down. So to have a common rule that says you wash your hands before meals, or the Catholic rule that you will fast from food uh, for at least an hour before, before you receive Eucharist, um, the idea of the rule, it's not evil to eat a hamburger before you come to Mass, but what it does do is undermine your preparation for Mass. So these rules, these cultic rules, these liturgical rules, and Catholicism has its share. It's about how we prepare ourselves uh, to confront the good, to meet the good. And so what I'd like you to think about is why there's been this shift um, in Western culture uh, at the level of intellectual history that has given us this mess about the good in American culture and why Christianity is the banner bearer for the link between the good and God and what, what you and what our uh, 
display is our evangelization, our witness to the good is an essential part of evangelization. But I'm going to talk about Aristotle. Me to drift onto the unknown. Maybe I've seen too much. Maybe I need to be alone. And so, what's the connection between Nietzsche's aphorism, if you believe in grammar, you believe in God and the gospel? Uh, to me, how I understand it, is that Jesus is talking about divine order, that there's a difference between this deep moral law that's in every human heart and that there's a difference between that and cultic laws about washing your hands before you eat meals or I would say fasting for an hour before you receive the Eucharist. Murder, chastity, theft, greed, um, unchastity rather, all of these things are fundamental to everybody, all times, wherever you live. Um, church laws about fasting, these serve their purpose for community cohesion. It's how it is we live together. But to get what's at play between Nietzsche uh, and the church and modern science is to understand causation in a bigger way than Nietzsche is willing to deal with. When Nietzsche looks at causation, uh, he's looking for God as some old man out there uh, with a big beard forcing us to do things because the only God he really recognizes is, is uh, power. But Aristotle and Aquinas, long before Nietzsche, uh, had a different understanding of causation. And so four, basic, four kinds of causation, material, instrumental, formal, and final. Um, Think of the material and the instrumental because these are the parts of Aristotelian causation that survive into the present day. When a modern science, scientist looks at the world, he looks at the material. It's the quantum field or it's uh, bio, the biological environment that they're looking at. For the social scientist, trying to reduce uh, people to data sets. Um, it's about how you can weigh and quantify. And that's always going to be uh, materiality. Um, certainly the physicist can do that with a quantum field. Certainly a biologist can do that with the human body. Whether you can reduce human beings and their behavior to data sets, um, truly I'm very skeptical of that. But it's the attempt to try to impose that kind of material causality um, and looking at uh, people as well as quantum fields as things. Instrumentality, the instrumental causes, um, how things happen. And so for the quantum field, try to figure out the interrelationship of the quanta, the data. For biology, it's, it's about, uh, well, very simply, acids and alkali. For um, data sets and social science, all of this in this uh, value-free environment is uh, why human beings do what they do. Uh, one theory is human beings are basically economic animals. They're always pursuing self-interest. Um, Adolf Hitler pursued the self-interest of the, of the master race. Mother Teresa pursued her own self-interest, which was helping the poor. I suspect that that's a very inadequate way of looking at human behavior, but at least you get the sense of uh, what books like Freakonomics are based on. Um, but it's science is limited to those two kinds of causation, material and instrumental. Um, what something is, how something happens. It's the other two causations that is really about a holistic view of the world, uh, the final and the formal causation. Final is 
Why is something? Why does a hammer exist? Hammer exists to pound a nail. Why does a human exist? For, for Catholic view, to uh, for union with God. Uh, the formal cause is um, well. The formal cause would be God gives us our soul. Um, you could say a formal cause. Um, is an image of the human being in God's mind. It's like a sculptor uh, doing the statue of David. The material cause is the marble. The instrumental cause is the hammer and the chisel. Uh, the formal cause is the idea in Michelangelo's head of David. The final cause is to please and delight. Um, so how we think as human beings, and this is why the pagans are so great, especially Aristotle, is they show us how far reason can go. Faith, on the other hand, is what takes us beyond where reason alone can go. But in Jesus' gospel today, in the gospel today, you could be a pagan and you could understand why unchastity is bad, to use another person as a thing. You could understand why murder is, is bad uh, for reality or greed or theft. These are things that people can appreciate, can understand, even if they don't have faith. But it takes a, a different kind of thinking to say none of those things matter, that all really matters is matter. And um, if you have this view that uh, you are the instrumentality, you get to decide for yourself what, what your life means, what the form of your life should be, then you are disconnecting from any good that's actually built into your world. And you believe that you become the arbiter of good. And this is Frederick Nietzsche and increasingly what's happening uh, in Western culture and American culture. Why do people distrust Nietzsche? This is my thoughts on it. Nietzsche is what I think of as a parasitic philosopher that you can't even imagine living in a world that's on Nietzschean terms or completely greedy, murder-filled, theft. Um, it, nobody is safe from anybody terms. I say it's parasitic because it's like Voltaire in the, 19th, the 18th century. He understood that his challenge to moral authority of the church and Christianity uh, would bring chaos in France, call it the 1789 French Revolution. And so he wouldn't accept it in his own life. But he wanted his neighbors to live it because it created a community in which he could live. That's what makes it parasitic. Thinkers like Nietzsche need a healthy organism in which to survive. But the problems of parasitic thinking is it starts to undermine the health of the organization. So if you're an atheist, can you believe in the good? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I, I, you'd have to come up with the reasons why, I suppose. Is making it up as you go along good for culture generation after generation? That, I suspect, strongly is not so. And I would hold up as example A, the 20th century. That's the century of Nietzschean thinking. I don't lay the sec First and Second World War at Nietzsche's feet. But people that think like him, they take responsibility for those moral outrages. But understand that something is a moral outrage. You have to first believe in morality. And to believe in morality, well, believing in grammar is at least a good start. Why? Well, do you remember how Jesus described in the gospel that he's the word of God, that is the logos, the intelligence, the wisdom of the creator present in creation? So Nietzsche, when he denies that grammar is anything other than power. 
What he's really fundamentally denying is the logic of the word of God present in Christ. Everybody gets to make their choices. Um, some choices really do have a final end, that is, in the kingdom of heaven. Others, if you don't believe in a final end, it's like a cul-de-sac. You might understand the form of things, or you might understand what material reality is, or you can understand why Michelangelo would build a statue. You just don't see what it all points to. That's the problem of atheism. Um, it is, in the end of the day, just going around in circles because none of us can go very far on reason alone. We need faith, hope, and charity to proceed into the kingdom of God. And it helps if you can talk in grammatically correct sentences. Then maybe people will understand you. So this has been Oral Valley Catholic. If you like this podcast, please hit like and share it with your friends. Until next week. It is time for me to drift onto the unknown. And maybe I've seen too much. And maybe I 